Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. We have the great good fortune of welcoming Henna Hundel as the guest host for today's Spirit in Action. She will be sharing the interview-based Henna Hundle show, originating from the studios of Harvard Radio Broadcasting, In My Place. I'm so impressed with Henna's work and the myriad guests she's welcomed to her show, notable thinkers and doers in a range of fields like medicine, science, politics, business, law, and more. Henna is nearing graduation from Harvard College with studies in human development and regenerative biology. I'm so pleased to have her here to share her riches, and so I'll turn the show over immediately to my guest host, Henna Hundel. Welcome to the Henna Hundel Show. I'm your host, Henna Hundel, and the Henna Hundel Show is brought to you from the studios of Harvard Radio Broadcasting. Here on the Henna Hundel Show, we feature the world's foremost experts for groundbreaking discussion within their respective fields, spanning medicine, science, technology, business, politics, policy, law, and more. Join me, your host, Henna Hundel on a mission to unpack and understand how contemporary high-impact issues are being tackled by the world's most influential leaders. For today's episode, I'm honored to share the air with our esteemed guest, Paul Hoffman, an Olympic rower. Paul represented the United States in the 1968 Summer Olympics held in Mexico City and in the 1972 Summer Olympics held in Munich. Paul earned a silver medal at the 1972 Games. I'm thrilled to welcome Paul to the program to discuss how we got started in rowing, his journey to the Olympics, and the incredible intersection of sports and social justice movements that occurred during his time at the Olympics. Please join me now in welcoming Paul Hoffman to the program. Okay, so Paul, tell me about when you began rowing. How old were you and what drew you to this sport initially? Well, I think the... uh... You have to cast your mind back a long way. I grew up in the Virgin Islands where I really, there was very little opportunity to do any sports and I was mm. tiny and I <laughs> uh, was anxious to get off an equally tiny, or at least to me, an equally tiny island at the time. Ironically, of course, I moved back home and have lived there for the last 35 years. But I, uh, I, I came up to New England to, to boarding school at Andover and you were required to do a sport and the, all the sports mm-hmm. seemed to involve running or getting hit, neither of which I liked to do. <laughs> myself and rowing had to be on water and I'd grown up on the water so I signed up and I was too small to actually pull the little rowing machines they used in those days <laughs> coach said that one of the masters in the rowing program said who wants to be a coxswain I said what's a coxswain and he said oh he's the little guy who sits in the back and steers and shouts and that struck me as just about 
perfectly defined sport <laughs> for a, a five foot tall, 110 pound kid from St. Thomas. So I signed up and, and, uh, I loved it and I kept doing it. I, I did it for my, uh, my four years at Andover. I went to school in England for a year, which is actually the only thing I've ever done in my life that I pre-planned because <laughs> I, I had wanted to go to and had gotten into Harvard, which was, of course, the finest rowing school in the country at the time and will be again. And, uh, I didn't want to graduate in 67. So I took a year and went to England. I actually caught the crew there, had a fabulous time and came back in the class of 1968 and walked in my first day and stuck a Mexico City poster up in the freshman locker room. In those days, mm-hmm. freshman sports were separated from, from the varsity program. And, uh, somebody said, what's that? And I said, that's why we're here. And they all looked at me <laughs> like I was a little funny. And, uh, over the next couple of years, everybody on the boat, in the boathouse, Came to under at least everybody on the heavyweight side of the boathouse came to understand that's really why we were there. We we went undefeated in college rowing for four years. I I, I was on the first boat uh, as a freshman and then three years on the varsity. And uh, this is a sort of lawyerly statement, but I never lost a college race. That is, <laughs> and that's correct. I did I did however lose a couple of international races, but we kept losing them to ever faster cruising by ever less of a margin and. In 67, we were second in what were then called the European Championships, but really were the equivalent of the World Championships. Mm-hmm. And in 1968, in a fabulous race, we uh, we beat a ever an ever better Penn crew by a tiny, tiny margin of inches, and were selected to go to Mexico City. And that was wow. Harvard's first and only Olympic eight. Uh, for all wow. sorts of reasons, including, unfortunately, I think how we finished. Uh, just another part of the story that they, the program for selecting or the process for selecting the Olympic crew was changed. So by 72, it was no longer open trials. It was a selection by a, of a national team by coaches and mm-hmm. 72 happily, uh, myself and, um, five other guys who had rode at Harvard, not all in the 68, but, but in the program, uh, were selected for the 72. Uh, Olympic boat, which managed to do what we tried to do in uh, in Mexico, uh, which was when another mm-hmm. one came in second. But in '68, '68 uh, was really the year that I think you were interested in talking about. And although I keep wondering whether it, these kinds of 50-year anniversaries don't seem a little uh, almost silly, uh, there has been a fair amount of interest for. In, in that year, not only because it was such a cataclysmic, right? Cataclysmic year, kind of 1848 all over again. Mm-hmm. One wonders, yeah. one wonders these days whether we aren't scrambling up the world with um, about as much chaos. Although it doesn't seem to be quite the same amount of hope. Um, right. Although you know, in the middle of '68, with the assassinations of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy, it was hardly a hardly a time of great hope, but. Mm-hmm. I think the I, I think there were a lot of student movements around the world. Uh, certainly, the Prague Spring going on in Paris mm-hmm. uh, that had hope. Ironically, uh, now we know what was going on in Mexico, which was quite horrific, and ended up with, right. with mm-hmm. mass violence just ten, nice, ten or twelve days before the Olympics. Which, surprisingly, perhaps uh, the people now where everything's everything is instantaneous and nothing can be done without a a video from somebody's um, smartphone 
we we arrived in Mexico City knowing nothing of what had happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm probably getting ahead of myself. The um, the part that was interesting that summer was as we or that year as we rode and we were, you know, fast and, and getting faster and, yeah. and optimistic about the trials. We were not unaware. Living in Cambridge, it was pretty hard to be unaware um, of what was going on in the rest of the world and mm-hmm. conversations among the crew were, you know, always split between what we were doing rowing and what we were doing in school and what we were doing in the rest of the and what was going on in the rest of the world. And one of the things that was going on was was an emerging uh, sort of public recognition and, and public yeah. discussion about black about black athletes. Um, ironically, the uh, the publicity probably came as much from a fellow named Pete Axtell, who ironically was an O'Leary Daily editor, um, <laughs> who was at the time at Sports Illustrated and wrote a couple of cover stories mm-hmm. on the revolt of the black athlete. He then moved on mm-hmm. to Newsweek, where he was the sports editor. But, and he was reporting on, on a number of things, including the Emerging Olympic Project for Human Rights, which was really, I think, generated and originated uh, and organized by a professor at San Jose State, uh, mm-hmm. Hannah Edwards. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Edwards was a very astute sort of uh, observer and practice and, and practitioner of the arts of public relations. Mm-hmm. The project itself had a wide, had a, a large number of sort of original sponsors, including Dr. King. Mm-hmm. And uh, started out with a flurry of discussion about boycott and and, and some really well known, you know, far more far more famous than frankly far more <laughs> famous than either the track guys who became as famous later or the crew who happily never became famous. Um, uh, you know, Karim uh, Abdul Jabbar actually did announce that he was not going to try out for. The Olympics right. in, in mm-hmm. time. Um, we in Cambridge realized we didn't know much about all of this, mm-hmm. but a group of us said that you know if we win the trials, um, which were out in Long Beach in California, uh, we really ought to find out more. And, and I was going to go visit Cleve Livingston, who lived in Sacramento after the trials, win, lose, or draw. And he and I kind of ended up selected in quotes to be the the emissaries to go visit. Uh, Harry Edwards, if, if mm-hmm. we were lucky and did win, find out what this was all about. Um, and from a Harvard perspective, it was really somewhat, somewhat amusing and, and kind of right. shows you the 50 years of a long, long time ago mm-hmm. in, in, yeah. some, in some social measures anyway. Because mm-hmm. I remember Cleve and I sitting in Sacramento we, and we uh, called up and said we were and got an appointment to go visit Dr. Edwards in office hours. And, and Cleve's dad was also a <laughs> professor in the in the California State System at the time, and uh, we said to Doctor, we actually asked Doctor Livingston. I said, he said, there was something. So what does one wear when one goes to office hours? And he looked at them like just <laughs> off, our, off our trees. And we, Cleve and I, finally decided, you know, we better do this the way we do it in Cambridge. So we put on summer suits and dug out a necktie and, and drove down to San Jose and walked into Harry Edwards' office. Wow. And there he was. You know, wow. He didn't, he didn't have his black beret on, which he usually had in public, but he certainly had a dashiki on. And, and oh he, my uh, gosh! And he was, he was a very tall man. He himself was, a, he was quite an athlete, and he's mm-hmm. 
Wow. And we, we had a really fascinating hours discussion where um, we were convinced that there had to be something we could do that threaded the needle between making a public statement uh, mm-hmm. in support of the ideals and principles of the Olympic project, which right. it would be pretty hard to not support if you're an mm-hmm. American. <laughs> sure. um, and at the same time, not disrupt uh, a team sport where mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. victory and defeat were separated by inches after rowing over a mile and, and where cohesion and, and absolute trust in everybody else was essential. And that's what mm-hmm. the crews at Harvard were famed for at the time. I mean, it was it was then thought that you didn't really want us to be too close to you or at the end of a race because nobody would get by us and if there were only a short distance to catch up we would we we just we raced that hard in those days the guys were just phenomenal and mm-hmm. we didn't have everybody we didn't have everybody on board there were some guys some of the under the underclassmen who i think for all sorts of reasons didn't know if it was the right thing to do because of the involvement of the Olympics, didn't know if it would, would be disruptive to the crew. And and uh, we all mm-hmm. decided, listen, guys, all we're going to do is find out what this is about, and we'll report back and decide whatever we can do. Mm-hmm. Harry Edwards, wise to that, said, listen, I'm going to be in Cambridge, um, or I can be in Cambridge. I'm in the East. Uh, the week you all get back after a little break and start training again, I, I'm happy to come and talk to everybody. But I'm yeah. not going to come there just, uh, you know, just to have a, a bull session with the Harvard crew. <laughs> right. um, somebody's somebody's got to tell me that they're willing to do something. And Cleve looked at me and I looked at Cleve and we said, well, we can't speak for anybody but ourselves, but we're certainly willing to to publicly support the principles of the Olympic project. And, and mm-hmm. we might, you know, we would be out of place to commit anybody else, but I will be surprised if not others. And he said, well, that's great. I'll, 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 come, I'll come to Cambridge. I'm happy to talk to everybody and, and meet everybody. Uh, and then perhaps we can do a press conference to announce your support and the support of anybody else. And we said, that would be fine. Mm-hmm. And wow. the intensity of the time after we got back to Cambridge, uh, mm-hmm. it's hard now to, 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 uh, to express because it, it, it was, um, it was unique from at least my experience, and I think the experience of it. Mm-hmm. We had we had nine guys in a room. We were all housed in Kirkland House for the stretch after the trials before <laughs> we went off to, to the mountains to train at altitude. And we got back, and we literally spent probably twelve or fourteen hours just talking it through, making sure everybody everybody understood what we what mm-hmm. we thought we were going to do. We decided yeah. we had to do something beyond just saying, "Gee, we support these principles." Yeah, and and the idea that emerged was that maybe what we could do is is stimulate a dialogue with other athletes on the team. We were selected very early; we were one of the first um, teams or, uh, selected in part because in rowing, the eights that didn't win the trials broke down into smaller boats and tried again. Okay, and and uh, we decided what we would do was make this public statement with Harry Edwards, and then spend. A little bit of time over the course of the summer as people were selected, writing letters to every mm-hmm. member of the Olympic team saying that, you know, we wanted to introduce ourselves and we wanted to promote the notion that amongst members of the team, uh, we might start a dialogue to understand better what our black teammates were, were talking mm-hmm. about. Hardly seemed a radical idea <laughs> in the summer right. of 1968. Right. 
But uh, as things turned out, it it, it provoked quite a wow. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it provoked quite a, a, a yeah a terrible yeah. Uh, a terrible response. Um, we we then um, we then uh, had a press conference. Well, first we had an extraordinary meeting in the Harvard Boathouse, and I don't know if you've ever been into a boathouse, but fifty years ago on the second floor. Mm-hmm. which was not then filled up with growing machines. There was a varsity heavyweight lounge, which was really a lounge. I mean, had wonderful little leather seats and yeah. photographs on the wall going back to this courageous sport in America. So we had photographs going back to the beginning of time, um, at least sports time, college sports time. And we, uh, we, um, we'd hang, you know, you'd hang out in there after practice. And that's really what I guess the purpose of it was. And, uh, we we had this uh we came in from practice the first day mm-hmm. and we had a meeting scheduled with, with Harry Edwards and and he showed up at the boathouse and standing there in this dark paneled room, you know, surrounded by photographs of Harvard classes from the beginning of time. You know, mm-hmm. all, all of course all of course white white mm-hmm. men, really wasps <laughs> for the first hundred years, I'm sure. Um and uh the uh and he spoke to the crew and we got a really mm-hmm. lively discussion that not everybody agreed with, with all he was saying, but that didn't seem to be terribly important either. Um and uh he he spoke and, and at the end six of the of the guys in the crew um mm-hmm. had agreed to sign a, a statement of support for the Olympic Project Human Rights. And, uh, which we then, which we then made public. Mm-hmm. Um, one story about just before that meeting, if I, because it, it really yeah, was, sure. I think, uh, it really was in many respects, uh, um, to me, one of the, the great incidents of that whole, of that whole exercise. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that a, a night or two before we decided to, uh, have the, um, have the meeting uh, with Harry Edwards, we we had a uh, we suddenly had the revelation. Wait a minute, we were inviting this man to come and speak at the boathouse, but it's not our boathouse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we thought of it as our boathouse, but you know Harry Parker was the rowing coach; and he is in charge of the program. Right. And we hadn't told him we hadn't told him what we were doing, and we hadn't, and we certainly weren't asking permission. But we decided we needed the night. I remember this the night before. I've been corrected by the guys who said it was actually. The night, two nights before, we we call up Harry and said, "Harry, it was the night before we started rowing, and we, we need to come and talk to you." And he lived out in Winchester, and he said, "Can't it wait till tomorrow?" And we said, "We really don't think so. We'd, we'd, we'd like to come and talk to you." He right. Said, sure. Come ahead. So we get out to his house in Winchester about nine o'clock at night, and walk in, and and just imagine any other mm-hmm. major sport coach getting having yeah. now Olympic qualified team <laughs> come in and present this to him, even today. Wow. We, we walked into his, we sat down in his living room, he said, what's up? And we said, well, we wanted to ask your permission to have Harry Edwards of San Jose State talk to the crew tomorrow or the next day in the boathouse. But we mm-hmm. wanted to also to let you know that we were going, we were inviting him because six of us at least are going to, um, Sign a statement in support of the Olympic project, and we didn't want this to come as a surprise to you. We're really not asking your permission, mm-hmm. but we want you to feel, we want you to know that we spent a lot of time talking about it. We're quite satisfied 
that uh, we should do this, and we're also quite satisfied it's not going to disrupt the crew. Right. And Harry, blindsided by this, looked up at us, looked around at every man, as I recall, straight in the face, and then said, I hope you guys know me well enough to know that I completely support the ideals and the principles of what you're of what you're talking about. There's wow. that's not a that's not a matter for discussion. Mm-hmm. What is a matter for discussion is the fact that I'm also a rowing coach and we worked awfully yeah. long and hard to get here and and so I you know would like to talk to you about and and then assure you that I'm gonna to continue to to pay close attention to the fact that none of this disrupts the the mm-hmm. training or disrupts the racing. We said, well that that we would we're all committed to. We, we have not, we have not made this a, a goal ahead of the rolling. The rolling is, is what we've been training for. We owe it to each other. We owe it to you. Um, and he said, well, then I'll see you tomorrow at the boathouse. <laughs> I mean, it is just a, it was really in my mind, Harry's finest hour. And Harry and I stayed wow. friends really to, to his death five years ago. He wow. Islands. I visited him here. Um, but, he, he was he was a truly remarkable man. He was the man who I always described as the finest teacher I had at uh, Harvard wow. College or the Harvard Law School. Yeah. And uh, then Harry Edwards came, and we had this, mar- <laughs> and this marvelous <laughs> session with the up. And then a wonderful fellow named Baron Pittenger, who ironically went on to then be executive director of the Olympic Committee, was the head of Harvard Sports Information at the time. And mm-hmm. the offices then were on what was then called Boylston Street, now JFK. And, Right. We went to him and we said, how do you hold a press conference? <laughs> he said, here's the list. Call these people from the radio stations, newspapers, TV stations. Tell them who you are, what it, where it is, what it is, who you're, who you're going to be with, and then don't answer a question. <laughs> what they want to do is not have to come. <laughs> and what you want them to right. do is come. So right. absolutely no answers. And, and he said, be strict about that. I'm telling you that's the key. So we, the old five-button phones, where you, which light lit up as you used a line, we, we, a couple of us were up there calling, and we'd get, say, the Boston Globe and get the sports department, and we'd say, hi, this, this is Paul Hoffman from the Harvard Crew, and, and uh, we'd like to let you know that members of the crew are going to be holding a press conference tomorrow at Kirkland House at such and such a mm-hmm. time <laughs> with Professor Harry Edwards uh, of San Jose State. We thought you might want to come. They said, what's this all about? We said, well, I guess you need to send somebody and then you'll know. And we'd hang up and instantaneously the same light <laughs> would light up. And <laughs> you would pick up the phone and there'd be the guy from the bus school and say, what the hell are your guys doing? Isn't that that, you know, radical <laughs> from California? Embarrassed. I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, I guess you better send somebody over. <laughs> it was more. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and we created a hell of a stir. Uh, much more, I wow. think, than we'd anticipated. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, we got back to rowing and minded our own business and wrote letters to members of the of the Olympic team as they were selected mm-hmm. throughout the summer. And, mm-hmm. uh, went to training camp and, and everything on the rowing front started to go from bad to worse to, sadly, to something close to disaster. Mm-hmm. Um, the stroke was never able to adapt to altitude. Um, we got mm-hmm. down to Mexico City uh, and he wasn't he wasn't really well enough to race, although he did race the opening race. I'd gone through four years of college. Not only had I never lost a race, I'd never had an oarsman sick and I'd never had a piece of broken equipment in the eight. Wow. And the first, the literally the first race of the Olympic regatta, wow. the stroke collapses and two riggers break. 
I mean, it was sort of wow. like whoever's up, whoever's up above watching over, you know, <laughs> had forgotten about us. Um, and we never rode the same crew two days in a row. Uh, we had different people sick every day. Mm. Finally, we, through a terrific race, got into the, uh, got into the finals. Um, but we really had very little left and, and it was a, it was really an extraordinarily bad decision on the part of the International mm-hmm. Committee to hold an Olympics at 8,000 feet because the results really had less to do with who normally at sea level or thereabouts would mm-hmm. have been strong. and had to do with either the process of selecting just for altitude or frankly right. the luck of the draw. Um, and, uh, you know, whether you just happen to have the right people in a boat who could deal with it. Right. Mm-hmm. Parallels to that, you know, the great thing about being a coxswain is that the oarsmen <laughs> do all the work. And I, <laughs> my, my job was just to not weigh more than 110 pounds, <laughs> staying away from food uh, and drink. And uh, but I love track and field, and I used to go to to the track to watch to watch uh, the events. Um, mm-hmm. In those days, in the Olympics, if you had, were an athlete, you could go into any you could go into any venue. Nobody. Nobody really stopped you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But I, uh, but Pete Axtham and I got to be friends, and so I started going to the track with him because he was far more knowledgeable about all of it. And I was there just coincidentally the day of the uh, the day of the finals of the 200 meters, and and Pete was seated with uh, Mrs. Smith and Mrs. Carlos, right. and I joined them, and we were and first I met the ladies, and and we watched the race, and it was. World record time and a phenomenal result by Tommy Smith. John yeah. Carlos made the, uh, I guess the, uh, the fundamental error of looking, which apparently in that kind of sprinting is, is is not something you can do without it costing a price. But anyway, he was he was nipped at the line by by <laughs> Australian named Peter Norman, who ran the race of his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were hanging over the side of the. Uh, of the stadium when they when they were coming back up uh to go out to the podium and clearly mm-hmm. something was up they they um I had no clue what was up but clearly something was up but the Australian Peter uh who I never met until years later during the uh during the track tra- the US track trials for the Athens yeah. but mm-hmm. who at that point looked up at me and said, Hi mate, you got another one of those buttons <laughs> and he and he pointed at my Olympic Project for Human Rights button, which I was wearing in my USA track. Wow. And I said, uh, I, I didn't, I said, no, I don't, I don't have another, but are you going to wear it? And he said, <laughs> yeah. And I said, you're going to wear it out there? And I pointed out to the podium. Mm-hmm. And he said, and he said, yeah. And I said, well, wow. I have mine. And I took it off and handed it to him. Wow. And sure enough, he put it on. Uh, and in 1968, Australia had closed immigration. You know, people of color were mm-hmm. not allowed to, <laughs> yeah. not allowed to, to, to emigrate. Wow. To uh, and they had their own problems, of course, with their indigenous folks. But I thought if a white Australian wanted to wear an Olympic project for human rights button with two black American athletes, I wasn't going to be the one to tell them it couldn't have mine. Wow. Yeah. And uh, the demonstration, of course, not only speaks for itself uh, today, but spoke for itself yeah. Even then, it has become really the the, the symbol of those games mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And a lasting image. I don't think any of us would have 
guessed how powerful it would remain uh, mm-hmm. as an emission yeah. symbol, but it has. Uh, right. All hell broke loose, of course, with the Douglas Roby, who was the head of the U.S. Olympic Committee, was right. effectively told by Avery Brundage, who uh, was now the head of the International Olympic Committee, that uh, he had to, as they put it, send those boys home. Yeah. Um, and tremendous tension and pressure throughout the uh, throughout the track team and the black athletes generally. Things had been a little tense right along, um, and there mm-hmm. was a there were strange, you know, strange things happening. I got confronted by the the uh, by the coach of the boxing team, who, ironically, the Olympic Project for Human Rights had as part of its initial demands the demand that there be a a, a black head coach of at least some sport. And mm-hmm. there was there was in '68 for the first time, and it was the coach of the boxing team who encountered me in the mailroom of the uh, wow. of the of the Olympic Village of the building we were in, the U.S. team was in. Mm-hmm. And grabbed me and threw me against the mailboxes and said, "Stay away from my, stay away from my damn boxers! I don't want you intimidating my boxers." And if I hadn't been sort of startled and a little bit frightened, I think I probably would have been used by the concept that I could have intimidated anybody on that. The flyway could have taken me out with a half a punch. Um, and uh, he and I waved the thing, but the uh, t- you know tensions were high. Um, right. and Carlos was summarily sent home. And then there were rumblings that they had made a ruling. One of the rowing officials told one of the guys in my crew. Mm-hmm. They'd made a ruling that said uh, if somebody was suspended from a, the team uh, for political reasons uh, from a team sport, that he, that he or she could be substituted for. Wow. And so, therefore, we were assured, you know, don't worry, you'll be able to row even mm-hmm. if Paul can't. And Paul didn't know why he couldn't, but apparently... Mm-hmm. There mm-hmm. had been some move afoot to charge me with something. They never did that. Oh, right. Wow. Uh, although it, 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 it may well have been some vague charge conspiring to aid the demonstration. Right. Um, and I think that really is rooted in the fact that in those days, I don't think officials really thought that athletes of any, of any kind or color could think or should be allowed to think for themselves. But, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. so, but the, the racism of it all probably also implied that maybe the blacks couldn't come up with this on their own. I don't know. But it was a bizarre charge. I mean, the only thing that I ever did was spontaneously. Right. Enormous. Right. But after the last practice before the finals, the finals being the next day, I was told that there was a hearing in downtown mm-hmm. Mexico City at which I was to, you know, answer questions from the U.S. Olympic Committee. Mm-hmm. I went in with Harry, who, got, who was in there for a long time before I was invited in, and they asked me these questions, and I realized really one thing, which was that if I was not in that boat the next day, I had very serious doubts that my guys would get in it to row. And after all these years of training, four years for, for yeah. four of us, mm-hmm. um, there was no way that I was going to not be in that boat and have them them row, even though... Everything objectively told us, you know, we were we were done. We didn't have another race in us. Right. Um, and in fact, we rode a crew that hadn't ever rode before uh, that day. And we, so I went in and I really tried to find my most, uh, hardly seems noble, but my most sort of deferential, preferable mm-hmm. behavior. Um, when 
word obsequious comes to mind. Um, and the always sort of very, to me, old uh, white men in blue blazers, uh, you know, were mm-hmm. asking me, didn't I see that what we were doing was disrupting the games and wasn't in the spirit of the games? And, and yeah. tried to deflect politely that I didn't see that we were doing anything disruptive of anything. I said, you know, what we've done is write letters. Um, right. And uh, that I thought, you know, having the members of the team get to know each other and discuss things was was hardly uh was hardly disruptive but you know we we had since training cap done nothing but rub. Um right. and then I was sent out of the room and it was a little bit I don't know if you ever had this experience in high school <laughs> grade school where you know you were competing for whatever the French prize or, right. or something like and there's something judged and then they send you all out of the room and then they the judges meet and like <laughs> right. I was sent down to a hospitality lounge and here I hadn't eaten for days and I waited on oh my god and was full of food wow. and drink and was told to cool my heels and after about well, it felt like forever but probably fifteen or twenty minutes they mm-hmm. summoned me back and they said, Well congratulations, you can row tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> they were giving me something we hadn't won wow. earlier. That's a right. right. Um, and but, and Harry and I went back to the village. The crew was up. It was damn near 11 o'clock at night, the night before the finals, still not knowing whether they're rowing the next day, mm-hmm. which we did the next day and, and came in sixth, uh, ending what was a really terribly unfortunate uh, regatta from a rowing point of view. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was pretty much Mexico. And I thought that was the end of it <laughs> until much, much later when I – when I realized that the Olympic Committee hadn't really given up. <laughs> and if you've got a minute, I'll read you a letter that was addressed to Harry on the 5th of November, the game is long over, in mm-hmm. 1968, from um, Olympic United States Olympic Committee stationery. Um, on November 5th, 1968, which ironically is, I think, the date that uh, Richard Nixon was elected president. But anyway, Dear Mr. Parker, Upon my return from Mexico, I noticed on my desk a mimeographed letter under date of September 17, 1968, signed by eight of your crew members. I also mm-hmm. found a number of letters which various athletes forwarded, both to me and to Olympic House, wherein they enclosed copies of letters sent to them by members of the Harvard crew. What I have not been able to understand is why, with the selection of the Harvard eight-oared crew to represent the United States at the Olympic Games, most of those crew members immediately expelled from their minds the purpose and objective for which they were selected and embarked on a rather strenuous program of civil rights and social justice with other members of our Olympic delegation to Mexico City. Wow. Civil rights and the promotion of social justice may have their place in various facets of society, but certainly this sort of promotion has no place in the Olympic Games, and particularly when they are held in a foreign country, which country is not particularly involved and these internal problems of ours. After meeting with you in Mexico City and having held a brief examination of some of your athletes, it is my feeling that you are probably the one most responsible for taking the Harvard crew and possibly their minds away from the purpose for which we took this group to Mexico City to represent the United States. At one time, I personally was in favor of disqualifying you and your crew for acts grossly unbecoming to members of our Olympic team. I am now glad that I did not encourage such a harsh action, for I feel that the miserable performance of you and your crew at Mexico City will stand as a permanent record against you and the athletes which you love. Wow. As a boy, I had great admiration and respect for Harvard and the men it produced. 
Certainly serious intellectual degeneration is taking place in this once great university. If you and several members of your crew are examples of the type of men that are within its walls, sincerely yours, Douglas F. Roby, President, United States Olympic Committee, CC, Mr. Nathan M. Pusey, President, Harvard University. Wow. Which is just in, you know, in a year of reading and writing letters, I mean, in a life of reading writing letters, this may be the classic. Civil rights and promotion of social justice may have their place in various facets of society. This from the head of the United States Olympic Committee. Wow. Unbelievable. So that was the, that was the Harvard, that was the Harvard cruise experience in '68, and and mine. Wow. Uh, what? Rowing, I think the rowing probably uh, is well forgotten, and the uh, you know, and, and I think we're all in, we've talked about this over the years, and we just had our 50th yeah. reunion. Um, mm-hmm. I think everybody on the on the crew was proud of what we've done. We're satisfied that we were not entirely silent um, at a time when. Yeah. Was clearly not acceptable to anybody, um, right. and uh, that uh, we wow. saw the kind of terrible cost it cost uh, other athletes. It didn't fortunately cost us that kind of cost. Smith and Carlos were were, were terribly uh, were terribly impacted by their actions in terms of mm-hmm. their future careers. And, and I think it sort of raises the issues I know much less about uh, that are bubbling up, ironically, 50 years, <laughs> right. close to 50 years later with yeah. athletes from professional sports, you know, mm-hmm. wondering where, what they can do and where they mm-hmm. can do it. Um, yeah. Comes at a pretty immediate cost to some. And, right. But I think that, uh, I, I think that athletes, you know, certainly college athletes, uh, are are still are are still students and are still citizens <laughs> and uh you know you can't you can't walk away from everything. It becomes mm-hmm. very hard in a team sport because yeah. you have to allow for you have to allow for differences of opinion, right. you have to allow for differences of emphasis and, and frankly age uh and, mm-hmm. and development and um I think I think that we did about as good a job as one could do in taking those in, things into consideration. Yeah, of course we were blessed yeah. by I think the the finest coach that uh, mm-hmm. certainly the finest the finest coach I ever encountered, and certainly as fine a coach as Harvard has ever had. And that was an interview with Paul Hoffman, an Olympic rower who represented the United States in the 1968 Summer Olympics held in Mexico City and in the 1972 Summer Olympics held in Munich, where he won a silver medal. I thank Paul for sharing the really fascinating story with us about his incredibly interesting journey to the Olympics and giving us a sense of what, at that time, the intersection of sports and social justice movements looked like on the ground. I really learned a lot from that conversation, and I hope you did too. You have been listening to The Henna Hundle Show, brought to you from the studios of Harvard Radio Broadcasting. Stick around, and we'll be right back. Hannah Hundel, today's guest host, will be back in just a moment. But I want to remind you first that you are listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production on the web at northernspiritradio.org, bringing to you the stories of world healing workers since 2005 to encourage and support you in your own labors to help our world. 
peruse the nordenspiritradio.org site to find links to our guests of the past 13 and a half years and to Harvard Radio and the Henna Hundle Show. On our site, there is a place for comments, and we'd love your feedback. There's also a donate button, and your click is what supports this full-time work. It's not the government, and it's not corporations. It's the wonderful listeners of Norton Spirit Radio who make this possible. But, heads up, remember that we first want you to make sure you support, with both hands and wallet, your local community radio station. Community radio is such a gift and a source of locally flavored talk and music, so help them first, and then consider helping Norton Spirit Radio. But now, back to today's guest host of Harvard Radio Broadcasting, Henna Hundle, and her second guest. Back over to you, Henna, after your intro music. Welcome to the Henna Hundle Show. I'm your host, Henna Hundle, and the Henna Hundle Show is brought to you from the studios of Harvard Radio Broadcasting. For today's episode, I'm honored to share the air with our esteemed guest, Dr. Howard Bachner. Dr. Bachner is the editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association. The Journal of the American Medical Association is one of the most highly regarded peer-reviewed medical journals in the world. In addition to serving as its editor-in-chief, Dr. Bachner is also the vice chairman of the Department of Pediatrics at the Boston University School of Medicine. It's really an honor to interview Dr. Bachner because, as I briefly mentioned, the Journal of the American Medical Association is truly the gold standard for responsible biomedical reporting, and a wellspring of medical literature with transformative implications for the field. The American Medical Association generates 48 issues of the journal every year, and these issues touch on such a wide range of topics that are really critical in thinking about not only the practice of medicine within the clinic, but also outside of it. To illustrate what I mean by that, Take a look at this month's issue, in which the journal sheds a light on everything from gun violence as a public health issue to taking a more critical look at how antibiotics are prescribed to discussing the effects of free or reduced tuition for medical school. If any of these topics grab your attention, I really recommend perusing the website of the Journal of the American Medical Association further. One thing that strikes me as incredible is that the journal has really done a lot in the way of broadening its digital reach and maintaining that digital engagement with the readership. And so that's a key topic I'm going to be discussing in my interview with Dr. Bachner because his initiatives have had much to do with helping the journal thrive in the digital landscape. I also want you to stay tuned until the end of the interview because Dr. Bachner and I cover a lot of other exciting ground 
In particular, we're going to chat about when the Journal published the only academic paper by a sitting U.S. president to date. That was in July 2016, when then President Barack Obama published his article titled "United States Healthcare Reform: Progress to Date and Next Steps." Dr. Bachner is going to provide some insight on how that actually materialized. Please welcome Dr. Bachner. So, Dr. Bachner, in an era where readership is increasingly becoming digital, how have you worked to expand the journal's reach? So, I've now been editor in chief for seven years, and one of the major mm-hmm. emphasis when I arrived was to be more proactive around digitalizing. Both our content as well as we reach people. I think the best example is with actual data. So when I arrived,、uh, we had about fourteen thousand followers on social media, Twitter and、mm-hmm. Facebook. That's pajama. As of this morning, we have well over seven hundred and fifty thousand. Wow. Our electronic table of contents went out to about one hundred and fifty thousand people、mm-hmm. in two thousand eleven. Now it goes out to about seven hundred thousand individuals. And so, knowledge transfer is fundamentally different now than it was even five or six years ago. We also noticed, just walking around, people were listening much more to music, to stories, and so、uh, mm-hmm. we began to create more podcasts. Four years ago, we had three hundred thousand downloads of our podcast on a yearly basis.、Mm-hmm. This year, we'll have close to two point five million. Wow! And so, we know that content moves much more quickly. Through different social media channels、mm-hmm. and through audio than it has in the past. Right, and so in addition to harnessing the power of digital, as editor in chief, you've worked to initiate three new journals: JAMA Oncology, JAMA Cardiology, and JAMA Network Open. Why did you feel it was important to expand the JAMA Network in this way? Well, I inherited the titles, although they were renamed. So we had archives of surgery, archives of pediatric. They were renamed JAMA Surgery, JAMA Pediatrics, in part because the brand JAMA is so strong.、Mm-hmm. But when we looked at those titles, we did a few things simultaneously. We also looked at the number of manuscripts we were getting in those areas,、mm-hmm. and how many were accepted, how many were rejected, and where those rejected manuscripts were being published. So,、mm-hmm. with respect to JAMA Oncology and JAMA Cardiology, we knew that we were Rejecting quite a few manuscripts who ended that ended up in very influential and important journals, and so we felt that particularly in those two areas, we wanted to capture more of the content that we didn't have space for in JAMA. In addition, if you look at the world's research effort,、mm-hmm. uh, although it's hard to get very precise numbers, the amount of research dollars in oncology, cardiology, and particularly diabetes is quite high. Mm-hmm. We know, for example, that the National Cancer Institute gets、uh, substantial funding in comparison to other institutes. So we also knew that cardiology and oncology were research-intensive areas,、mm-hmm. and so that bodes well for a research journal. With respect to JAMA Network Open, it was a different decision. Last year, we received about seventeen thousand research papers. Of、mm-hmm. those, about a third underwent peer review, so that would be about say five or six thousand. Mm-hmm. We only published about 1,500 of those across the network, and so again, we knew that we were rejecting content that was undergoing peer review as a first test, and then much of it was being published quite quickly、mm-hmm. in other journals.、Mm-hmm. So、uh, again,、um, we we wanted、uh, to offer 
greater services to our authors, which is that we weren't going to expand all of those journals. Um, there's also a, a trend towards fully open access journals. So that mm-hmm. wasn't part of the basis for launching JAMA Network Open, which is a fully open access journal. So I understand you have an editorial background and expertise from your work with other publications. And so given that, what kinds of innovations have you strived to bring to JAMA as editor-in-chief? Yeah, there were a number of things. So I've previously been editor-in-chief of Archives of Disease and Childhood, mm-hmm. which is a, a British publication. And when I was there, more than 15 years ago, we began to introduce podcasts, short article types, various types of clinical reviews. I thought that was a important service to many of our readers there, and I do uh, think the same is true at JAMA, in part because the vast majority of uh, physicians in the U.S., there's about a million, are not clinical investigators. They're, they're clinicians who take care of patients, work very hard at doing it. And so I wanted to make sure that we had more content that would be uh, of interest to them And so we've really emphasized opinion pieces, which we call viewpoints, which are very popular. We get many prominent writers. We're very fortunate. Um, Abraham Fergazi's written for us, Don Berwick, uh, Atul Gawande on occasion. Um, And then in the clinical review and education section, uh, we've added numerous short article types, stats and Mm -hmm. methods, clinical guidelines, synopsis, again, more easily consumed by clinicians. The other thing we've done is not eliminate certain article types that we know are quite popular and really emphasize not evidence, but the power of narrative in medicine. So that would be a piece of my mind, which had a longstanding presence in JAMA. Now, Preeti Milani oversees that section. And I think um, people have uh, commented that they're pleased that we've held on to piece of my mind, poetry. And then under my work, which is leadership, we started an arts and medicine section, which is uh, writing about how arts are influenced by healthcare and how healthcare influences the arts. And so one thing that will forever be etched into JAMA history is in July 2016, when JAMA published the first academic paper from a sitting U.S. president to date, which is incredible. I mean, I still remember reading that when it came out. Can you tell the story about how this article by then-President Obama came to be in the journal? Yes. Um, We were contacted by the White House and asked if we would consider uh, a piece by uh, President Obama. Mm -hmm. Uh, We received a draft of it, and I think they were surprised when we told them that – it was not consistent with what we normally publish. And even though he <laughs> was president, our preference would be that he would modify it um, because we wanted it to be like other mm-hmm. special communications, uh, factual and data-driven. Right. Um, and I uh, was pleased. Uh, Phil Fontana Rose, executive editor, and I worked with the White House over a period of uh, a number of months Mm-hmm. so that the paper would meet the same uh, editorial standards that we have for all special communications. Um, and we had enough correspondence with the White House to know uh, that President Obama was indeed writing it. Um, publication mm-hmm. um, was held up because there were a number of uh, national and world events that intervened, so we had to 
wait uh, about an additional six weeks um, because they didn't want it uh, to be published at the same time where there were a number of national crises. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an extraordinary uh, privilege, obviously, and uh, to publish it. Um, I've answered many questions uh, about it. it. It definitely meets our traditional uh, editorial standards. Mm-hmm. And I think it was important because uh, post-expansion uh, or or acceptance of Medicaid and Medicare, the federal level in the 60s, this was the first major health care reform at the federal mm-hmm. level in close to 50 years. And I, I think it's the, the one time that President Obama talked more about health care as being mm-hmm. a, a right and not a privilege, which is something he has not articulated that carefully many times. Uh, and I uh, am uh, happy to admit that at the time of publication, uh, there was certainly a, a, a kind of giddiness in the office about publishing the paper. And that was an interview with Dr. Howard Bachner editor-in-chief of the Journal of the American Medical Association. I'm incredibly grateful again to Dr. Bachner for joining me for that conversation. I found it really intriguing to learn about the behind-the-scenes work, if you will, of keeping a publication like the Journal of the American Medical Association producing such high-caliber content that's so widely regarded here and abroad and that keeps us up to date on groundbreaking biomedical research and issues. You have been listening to The Henna Hundle Show, brought to you from the studios of Harvard Radio Broadcasting. I'm your host, Henna Hundle, and I thank you for tuning in. Great thanks to Hannah Hundle for sitting in for me today for Spirit in Action. Obviously, Hannah is gifted and insightful, and you can look forward to more from her about every two months. I'll be back as your host next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.